listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. Good morning, everybody. Oh, it's good to be back. We had a great time in New York seeing uh, family and grandbabies, so... Woo! Yes. So, um, this morning we are going to begin a, an Advent series, and we're going to be looking at starting this. We're going to be looking over the next four weeks. So, for the four Sundays in December, we're going to be looking at uh, various Psalms. Um, and so, I better, I probably should back up, right? Um, we do have an item in the box, but the person who put the item in the box isn't here, and so it doesn't seem right. So I think I'm going to, uh, I'll wait until that person is here. I mean, I just, feels odd to, right? So, all right. So I bought myself a week is all I'm trying to tell you, right? So I could sweat another week about it. So, no, but we're going to be, the Advent series, we're going to be going through um, four Psalms. Um, this, this morning will be Psalm, Psalm 2. Um, and what we're looking, focusing on are um, Messianic Psalms. And what I mean by that are Psalms that were written that have a really clear connection to, to Christ and to Jesus. And so this Advent season, right, and we, we sung this morning about the King who was worthy, right? We opened up with that song and the praise that he's due. We want to remember him, remember him, and remember Christ. He is the reason for the season. He is the season. Um, and so we're going to look at Psalms. We're going to look at four. Um, but this morning will be Psalm 2. <laughs> because what Psalms do, one way that you can kind of summarize um, Psalms is this way, that they express the, the struggles of God's people. So when you read through the book of Psalms, right, you, you, can, you feel some of the pain and some of the anguish that God's people were feeling. They also talk about the rebellion that they were witnessing in the world around them. Now, they were rebelling, right, but they also experienced rebellion around them, and they were, they were anxious for and looking forward to God's reign and God judging the rebellion of the people around them. But they were called to ultimately, right, trust in God, trust in his timing, which, by the way, is the way to wisdom, is to trust in the Lord's. And so they're longing for his reign and that the reign of God for them at times seemed really kind of distant and far off. Right, but ultimately, in the coming of Christ, in the coming of Jesus, right, we start seeing the kingdom of God shake out a little bit and become a little bit clearer. And so we're going to look at Psalms that talk that are messianic and show how they, the authors connected them to, to Christ, ultimately. So let me read for you Psalm, chap, Psalm 2. Um, it's all, all 12 verses. I will pray for us, and then we will have some fun this morning in God's words. The author of the psalm writes these words. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to gather. Lord, I thank you for the first Sunday of Advent. Lord, we're a time where we pause each and every year to focus specifically on the Christmas season, on the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You sending him to this earth, Lord, to, to redeem and to save your people. Lord, and so we want to pause and thank you for that precious, precious gift. And so I pray now that as we spend time in Psalm 2, Lord, that you would open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear and to know and to understand and to see your truth. Lord, I pray that not just for those who are here listening in the sanctuary, who may be listening online, Lord, I pray that for myself as well. Lord, that we would know you better, Lord, that we would love you more, that we would see you clearer because of our time here this morning. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. So we're going to attack this psalm in four sections, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6, verses 7 through 9, and then verses 10 through 12. Because what happens, right, is there is a dialogue that kind of is taking place throughout the psalm, and different people are speaking. And so we want to talk about and look at what each group or what each person was saying. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. And what the author does here, he's, he's expressing outrage. He's, he's scratching his head and saying, how on earth could these nations and could these kings have the audacity to rebel against God and his chosen king? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Part of the structured prayer time was praying for our nation and praying for right our leaders why because if we're honest with ourselves cannot we see them raging and plotting in vain and it's frustrating so why do they do this the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. To rebel against the king, God's anointed, is to rebel against God's. The king was to be a ruler, but he was also to be an example of what it meant to be faithful to God's. And the hope and the blessing of the nation of Israel under the king, under the monarchy, right? That was, that was how they were going to be blessed was through the king and the leadership and the example of the king. 
but there are these pagan nations that are surrounding Israel that are defying their gods. And the author can't believe it. These rulers are acting as a group. They're coming together. And and it's not this kind of temporary rebellion. It's this deep-seated, resolute, white-knuckled, we are not going to stand for this anymore. And if we pause for just a moment, and we push forward, and we think about the ministry of Jesus, and we think about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the scribes who joined forces with white-knuckle discipline to rid themselves of Jesus, God's anointed. So it's the attitude of their hearts that's very visible in their actions as they plot and plan to burst the bonds apart and to cast away the cords from us. They viewed God and they viewed His anointed and His King as slavery, as being imprisoned. And they wanted nothing to do with it. But don't miss what the author of this psalm says in the second phrase of verse 1. The people plot in vain. There's a sovereignty that God has over His creation. And so this plotting that they're doing, the scheming that they're doing, this gathering together and hatching out a plan is in vain. It's destined to fail. It's an exercise in futility. They're further separating themselves from God. They're distancing themselves from God. They have no hope in their rebellion to know the true God as they rebel against Him. And just for a fun little fact, right? and here's reasons why we can be, the authors in the New Testament can make such a clear connection to this being a messianic psalm. The word for anointed in the Hebrew language is Mashiach. It's where we get Messiah. The word in the Greek, so if you're, if you're in the Greek Old Testament, the, the Septuagint, the word for anointed is Christos, where we get Christ. But there's a rebellion that is taking place that is causing deep-seated concern in the author. And it's easy for us, it's easy for me to read those first four verses, three verses, excuse me, and be like, oh man, look at all the rebellion around us, huh? Look at it. But I need to pause, and we need to pause and remember, but for the grace of God, we were part of that rebellion. Paul in Colossians 1.21 makes it very clear that apart from Christ, we are alienated, we are hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and through 3, he talks again, Paul talks again about being dead in our trespasses, following the course of the world, being children of wrath. We are, we're part of that rebellion. 
but for the grace of God and the gospel and and Christ, we, we are no longer part of it. But here's the problem that we have. Here's the struggle and the reality of our lives, our Christian lives, right? Is that we can view the rules of God, we can view the commands of God as bonds and as cords and as slavery. We still, to this day, rebel and push back on what God calls us to do and who He calls us to be. The Apostle John in 1 John 5, verse 3 writes these words, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commands, and His commandments are not burdensome. Right, But I can live my life, and I'm going to guess you can live your life, like those commands are burdensome. So the appeal is, don't be so quick to look out here, but to look here when we talk about rebellion and sin. It's active, it's alive, it's working. But then we now go to verses 4 through 6. So we've talked and we've heard about these, these nations that are rebelling and how dare they rebel against God and now God is going to respond to them. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The God who sits in heaven, the God who sits over and above all the violence, all the rebellion, all the hate, the God who sees it all, and the God who has omnipotent power to do as he pleases to address the rebellion and the hate and the evil. Now, he doesn't take the time or take the trouble to rise up and battle with them directly. Because he knows it, it's, he, he can laugh because it's silly, it's folly, it's vain. He knows how absurd and how irrational and how futile the plans of these kings are. And he, he laughs. <laughs> it made me think of, going back to the Old Testament a little bit further, Pharaoh and his plan, Pharaoh's plan, to remember to, to wipe out all the Israelite Hebrew boys. Great plan. How does God deal with that? Remember, God is sovereign over all of this. And so the Pharaoh makes this declaration that I'm going to, let's, we're going to wipe out all the Hebrew boys. That will solve our problem. Except for there is this family, and they had a son named Moses. And his family protected Moses. There was something special about this boy Moses and they protected him. And the family protected him by putting him in a basket and putting him in the the Nile River amongst the reeds and the bulrushes, right? And then what happens? Who finds the son? Who finds Moses? Pharaoh's daughter, right? So, hey, here's your great plan. Oh, by the way, your daughter's going to raise the one who's going to free my people. Tell me he's not laughing, right? And he laughs. Right? It's this, it's this, this derision is kind of like this, this, this mocking laughter. Like, what are you doing? Who do you think you are? Do you really think that you can accomplish this? 
And so he speaks to them in his wrath, but he, but he terrifies them in his fury. And it's not words that he speaks. How does he terrify them? How does he speak to them in his wrath? He appoints his king. I'll deal with you this way. This is my king. I've anointed him. I am putting him in this position. I am establishing him in Zion, in Jerusalem. Do what you want. This is my king. You don't stand a chance. He laughs at them. He declares his purpose and said, here is my king. The throne of David is going to continue forever. He does exactly what the nations are trying to undo. And he, he, he responds in such a way, they're trying to prevent the king from ruling. They want to burst the bonds. And he says, oh, by the way, I'm putting my king there. He laughs. Go ahead. Break the bonds all you want. Try. I am God's. I am above the heavens. And so then in verses 7 through 9, we hear this, this, this anointed king speak. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The nations are rebelling, God speaking, and now the king, the anointed one, speaks. And he has this decree from God's. It's a personal decree. And it's a renewal of the covenant that God has made with David and the Davidic dynasty. It establishes the nature and the authority of the king. And it's an everlasting covenant that will always be and that will always stand. And the decree includes these words, You are my son. Powerful language. Because God is saying that the anointed, the king that sits on the throne, there's a son relationship, a father-son relationship there. And we go, we go to back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 14 and through 16. And this is the Davidic covenant. This is God telling David, this is who you are going to be. He says, I will, make, I will be to him a father and he will, shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God enters into a father-son relationship with the anointed, with the king. And this, this type of language isn't unique to the Bible. That type of covenant relationship, it's, it's, called, it's called a grant treaty, if you, a grant covenant. Right? And these happened throughout the worlds back in that day. There were these grant covenants that happened throughout the worlds. And it was that very father-son type of relationship where a king would make a commitment to a subordinate. And it was the, the obligation was for the king to the subordinates. 
It protects the rights of the subordinates. And there were no demands made from the king to the subordinates. And so if we go back and we read 2 Samuel 7, verses 14 through 16, right? it's God making, like, making a covenant with the king. And it's God saying, your kingdom will continue. He's protecting the king. There's no demands made. If you disobey, I'm going to discipline you. But it doesn't mean you're going to lose your kingship. It doesn't mean you're going to lose. The throne is going to continue forever. So Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is going to reward the king and elevate him to the status of, of sonship when he's appointed. And the son needs to be faithful but doesn't have to be faithful. It's this unconditional kind of agreement. It's not dependent on the faithfulness of the king. And so when you read through the Old Testament, and you start reading about these kings that were wicked and that were evil. But yet the line of David continues despite their rebellion. And it's this eternal lasting covenant. There's lands and there's this enduring dynasty. And God is going to take an heir of David as a son to be the example for the people, to rule the people, and to establish his kingdom forever. And so he says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I'm entering into this relationship with you, and I am placing you, I am appointing you, and I am installing you into this position of king and all the authority and the responsibility that comes with that. And I'm going to give the nations as your heritage. It's worldwide universal domination. <laughs> it had nothing to do with the power, the intelligence of the king but the power and the rule and the authority of God. It's His kingdom. And He'll rule them with a rod of iron. And those who don't follow God, those who rebel and reject, are fragile like pottery. <laughs> and that rod of iron will smash the pottery to smithereens. And so now the author, I believe, of the psalm now speaks in verses 10 through 12, and he says these words, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That, those three verses are loaded with commands. And we're just going, we're going to look at them really quickly. Right? Number one, right? be wise, be warned. Right? Understand that God is a vengeful God. He's a wrathful God. And yes, He is laughing at your rebellion. But be warned and be wise about this. Because this God is also gracious and merciful. 
and he's telling you that you need to obey him and that you need to follow him. You don't have to figure this out by yourself. He's telling you what you need to do. You've been put on notice. He'll smash you like pottery. He laughs at your scheming. Be warned. Ruin awaits you if you rebel. It's certain. It's going to be complete. So be warned. Right? Serve the Lord with fear. This idea of, of service is, is an idea of, of submission to, to God and to His sovereignty. So you, you serve God with gladness by what? By serving and obeying the king that God, God's anointed. If you rebel against the king, you rebel against God. But if you serve the king, you're serving God. So serve him. Serve him with fear. Not cowering fear, but respect for who he is and the power that he has. <laughs> Maintain this allegiance to the king. Oh, and by the way, rejoice. Rejoice with trembling. It's this idea of respectful praise. <laughs> that you, you understand who God is. You understand His authority and His rule and His sovereignty and the power that He wields. You understand that He has put this king in place and you, you respect that, but you're rejoicing because it's God's king who's there. It's not some random guy. God's put him there. God's anointed him. And so you begin to understand who God is and who you are. It's the gospel. You see the holiness of God and the power and the might and the glory of God and you look at yourself, you start seeing just the sinfulness and how, how depraved and you truly, truly are and you just see the gap and you rejoice because God is working and God is moving. And then you, you, you kiss the sun. It's metaphorical language. It's, it's, it's this idea of honor and respect and submission and allegiance and dependence. Kiss the sun. You, you need him. You need the Lord's anointed. You need him. <laughs> but loaded in that is this, this idea and this warning of being insincere. Right? Because what the kings would do, right? Kings back in that day, and it happens even today, right? Is that they're going to say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're our guy. Yeah we'll, 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 yeah, we'll enter into this treaty with you. Yep, yep, no, we're good. Right? Until, you know, there's an opportunity for us to rebel. And then we're going to try to do that. It's, it's the warning here. No, you, you, you need him. Don't even think about it. Right? Why are you, right? So we go back to the beginning of the psalm. Why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? <laughs> Blessed are all who take refuge in him. <laughs> and so now 
we think about this, right? And we say, okay, this, this ultimately is fulfilled in Christ, right? Being the anointed. And so now we have to do a little bit of work and have a little bit of fun, right? So we kind of think about kingdom of God. And so we think about, we go back in the history of the Israelite nation, and we think about, you know, how they, they progressed and how they grew, right? And, and God, right, they, they were supposed to be an example to the nations, but then as they saw the other nations, they said, hey, we want a king too. <laughs> and so God gives them kings. So there's this period of, of monarchs or of kings in the history of Israel. Now, they're, they're human kings, Right? They're men that God appointed, but ultimately like, it, it's God who's appointing them. And so and if you rebel against the king, you're rebelling against God. So it is truly still God's ruling. It's a theocracy, if you will. Right? But he's, got, he's appointing kings for his people. But we know throughout the history of Israel that the kings weren't exactly stellar. They didn't exactly do the best job. They weren't faithful to, to God's. And so there's a gradual decline and demise of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms. But with the demise of Judah, the line of Davidic kings kind of formally comes to an end. They now find themselves in exile. And so this idea of worldwide kingship, universal rule, the throne and the line of David continuing forever seems like a distant memory and an impossible dream. But yet, God is faithful to His promises. And He uses the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 31 to say these words, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. There's a change. The kingdom looks a little bit different. It's, it's being restored, but it's being, there's an upgrade. And so when Jesus begins his earthly ministry, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says these words, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And so from the perspective of the New Testament authors, the writers of the gospels, there's this clear connection for them that in some sense Jesus is this king of this kingdom. He, he's he's the, the anointed one. Something has happened here. Well, if he's the anointed one, he is the Mashiach. He's the Messiah. He's the Christos. He is the 
Christ. And so as you read the New Testament and as you study the New Testament, you just see this this kingdom of God thing start to flesh out. (laughs) And the authors start making connections between Psalm 2 and Jesus. He's, He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Peter confesses that. You are the Christ. And so Psalm 2 is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah, the the Christ. And if you, you think about just the life and ministry of Jesus, you think about his baptism, Mark chapter 1, verse 11, God says, this is my son. The transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, they hear a voice from heaven and God says, this is my son. In fact, you can go to Acts chapter 13 and Paul goes into the temple to teach and they say, the people that are there say, hey, do you have a word of encouragement for us? Can you please give us a word of encouragement? And so Paul gets up and starts giving them a word of encouragement. He starts with Egypt and the captivity and God freeing them and delivering from the hands of the Egyptians. He talks about their rebellion and wandering through the wilderness. He talks about them taking the the promised lands. He talks about how God was faithful and raised up judges to help. They didn't like the judges, so God had to raise up kings to help them. And there was this one king, David, and it was through David that his line was going to continue. There's the Davidic covenant, right? And from that line will come Jesus. And then there's this guy, oh, by the way, John the Baptist who showed up, and he was preaching. He was an odd guy, but he was preaching and paving the way for Messiah, for Jesus. And Jesus arrives, and Jesus ministers, and Jesus lives and walks on this earth, and he was rejected. And he was killed. But then he says in Acts 13, verse 31, excuse me, starting in verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Zion. Who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, stay with me, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul is saying, that the resurrection of Jesus was his coronation. He is the King. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He's the long-awaited one. (laughs) And if we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus... Right? If, we, if we look at the Old Testament and how does Psalm 2 talk about the kings or the kingdoms, right? They're violent, they're rebellious, 
They're trying to break the bonds and snap the cords. But yet in some sense, they could be subdued by the the king. He ruled with a rod of iron. He would smash them like pottery. So at face value, Psalm 2, it's pretty violent. (laughs) It's a pretty violent psalm. Smashing and breaking and terrifying and wrath. And and if we look now at the life and the ministry of Jesus, the, the rebellion that he faced. Yes, from Herod. Yes, from Pilate. But from his own people. The religious leaders of the day. The common people. There was opposition. There was violence towards Jesus. But Jesus didn't confront the violence. He accepted it at his death. So this, this, this new kingdom, this, this king, this anointed one, that kingdom was established by this king, this Messiah, receiving and accepting the violence and the death. But, right? But, Paul's told us, right? He was raised from the dead. That's his coronation. This distinguishes him from all the other kings that came from the line of David's. He was not just merely an earthly king. There's divinity, there's sonship, there's a relationship with the Father that none of these other kings had. And so we can go back to Hebrews chapter 1. We've got to go back to Hebrews, right? We can go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, where the author of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2, Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. And the author of Hebrews is saying that that Jesus has been appointed to a position of authority. And Jesus has been coronated. Right? And he is now the king. He sits in a position of authority. Supreme authority. He is sovereign over all. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. Far superior to angels. But what the author of Hebrews actually does, right, is he ties together 2 Samuel 7 and the Davidic covenant and Psalm 2 and says, oh, by the way, Christ fulfills them. It's Jesus. He's the heir to the throne. He's the appointed one. He's the Messiah. And so now we, we celebrate the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, it's, it, who's going to have worldwide dominion, who's going to rule forever and ever and ever. That was promised to David. And so we live 
in this tension to this day of this already not yet where he sits enthroned. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. But man, we're longing for him to rule completely and entirely and to do away with and dispatch the rebellion and the evil and all those things. Those, those day, that day is, is coming. I think this is part of the reason why when you, when you read the book of Revelation, there are so many allusions and there are so many references to Psalm 2 because it's looking forward to the rule and the reign and the fulfillment and the ultimate rule and the triumph of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. And so we sit here now and think, okay, what do, what do we do with this? Right, what, do we, what do we do with this? There's three things, maybe four. Number one, just, just reading Psalm 2, there, there is nothing more irrational than rebelling against God. I, would you, I'll just leave that one there. Right? There is nothing more irrational than rebelling against God. Let's talk about his anointed. Opposition to Jesus, opposition to the gospel is unreasonable. <laughs> right? Pushing back against that it's unreasonable. If he's the anointed one of God to rebel against him is to rebel against You see this connection that starts being made. It makes no sense. But here's the problem. We rebel against Jesus. We rebel against the gospel because we think that what God's called us to do are like bonds and are like restraints, and we don't like that. But true wisdom lies in obeying Jesus. So we never graduate from the gospel. We need it each and every day in our lives. We need to be reminded of who God is and who we are and what he's accomplished for us through Christ. Because number three, the ruin of the wicked is certain. It's terrible. It's complete. So it's almost like the gospel is the iron rod. And so when we, we think about, right, when we sing about you are holy, you are mighty, you're the prince of peace, you're the king who's worthy, he is. On so many different levels, he is that king. But we think about Jesus. We think about the life that he lived. We think about him coming in and getting involved in the mess and the rebellion and the evil and the wickedness and the fallenness of this world. Living a, a perfect, sinless life in perfect obedience to the Father. Facing the violence, facing the rebellion that he faced, the mocking and the ridicule how he was held in derision, how he was mocked and laughed at. He never wavered. 
And he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and he gave up his life. God gave him that authority to give up his life and to take it back up again. And so he gave up that life to pay for our rebellion and to pay for our sin. To redeem us and to restore us back to God the Father. God accepted that sacrifice. He raised him from the dead. That was his coronation. He sits as the king, the almighty king, the anointed one, the Christ and the Messiah. And he's at the right hand of God the Father interceding for our behalf. And if you are in Christ, you are safe and secure and you have eternal life. But if you are not in Christ, the ruin is certain and terrible and complete. It's eternity separated from God in hell. Share the gospel. Right? It, share the gospel. Right? Understanding the salvation that you have in Christ. Right? And what, what a better time of year to share the gospel. <laughs> People need to hear it. They need to understand. They might mock you. They may laugh at you. But share the gospel. It's the hope that they need. It's the only hope that they truly have. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for this time in your words. Lord, in the truth of your words. Lord, I thank you for our Messiah. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. Lord, we, we, see, we see glimpses of him. We see hints of him all throughout the Old Testament, but we see his fulfillment. And Lord, it's an encouragement when we can read a psalm like Psalm 2 and just see the way that that connects to Christ and it's fulfilled in Christ and that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. It is a story, the Bible is about him and the salvation that he brings. And we long for this day when he rules and reigns ultimately. We long for that day, Lord. But until that day comes, Lord, may we remember the gospel. Lord, may we battle to, to be faithful to you, to deal with our sin. <laughs> Lord, but may we share the gospel. Lord, may we look to have conversations. Because the reward for us is great. But the condemnation for those who aren't in Christ is great. Lord, so help us to have a heart of compassion for those who don't know you. Help us to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel and help us to live in light of the gospel. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others. And for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit Twin Villages Church. Dot org. Soli Deo Gloria. Thank you.